podcast for the London Institute of Banking and Finance with Derek Leatherdale, the Managing Director at GRI Strategies and a visiting scholar at the Institute. Derek heads up the Institute's Geopolitical Risk Programme, where students can learn about the changing geopolitical environment and how to manage increasingly complex financial sector impacts. This is an interview with Derek Leatherdale, and I'll let him introduce himself. Derek, what is your role? Um, thanks very much, Weida. Uh, I run uh, a geopolitical risk consultancy called GRI Strategies. We're unlike uh, pretty much every other political risk consultancy in that uh, we don't uh, typically uh, provide on a routine basis advice on what's going on in the geopolitical environment. Uh, to businesses. We're much more focused on helping firms, uh, including and especially in the financial sector, integrate more systematic and effective approaches to geopolitical risk management and mitigation. Uh, By way of background, and the reason I do what I do is that uh, I joined HSBC after a first uh, stint of my career in national security and intelligence roles uh, for government Mm. here in the UK. Uh, and I ended up in HSBC setting up the group's uh, geopolitical risk function, which uh, sat within the broader uh, second line risk function uh, in the bank uh, and uh, ended up sort of integrating and embedding more formal and systematic approaches to uh, the bank's strategic geopolitical risk exposures in a way that hadn't been done before when I was sitting in the in the geopolitical risk seat in HSBC. I looked for advice and guidance on how I should go about embedding uh, more systematic approaches to geopolitical issues, uh, and I couldn't find any. Um, There were Mm -hmm. no sort of sources of expertise uh, out in the market that that really illuminated how I should be operating. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I ended up sort of effectively, and it sounds a bit flippant, but it's not meant to be, I ended up working out what to do for myself over a number Mm -hmm. of years. Um, and it's really that experience that I wanted to to bring to uh, other firms, other organisations, particularly in the financial sector, to try and help them uh, sort of, um, as it were, avoid having to learn for themselves. After running the geopolitical risk function for about seven years, I went on to a role in the in the group government affairs team, uh, and that's kind of a slightly different take on how large corporates interact with policymakers, public policymakers, um, uh, and and how politics and geopolitics can affect organisations. And that was also a useful experience uh, Mm. in in the sense that it sort of reinforced that that, um, actually typically, especially in risk management and risk functions uh, and teams, um, there is a bit of a gap around Mm. geopolitics. Well, why do you think such a large sort of international bank did not have a systemic approach to risk to geopolitical risk management um, i think there was a sort of um a sense uh, rightly or wrongly that um uh in that period after the cold war uh, geopolitics had fallen away as an issue mm. globalization um was a sort of effectively a kind of one-way street um as it's been termed by others 
And, mm. uh, you know, we've talked before about the the Francis Fukuyama thesis about the end of history, um, mm. you know, which which really started to gain traction in the 1990s. So I think broadly for, for a kind of an entire generation of those in the financial sector, geopolitics hasn't really been something that's sort of troubled the more affected okay. uh, corporate performance. If you go back a, a, a decade or two before the end of the Cold War, though, you would typically find a generation of, of particularly bankers who were used to dealing with things like sovereign debt crises. And then if you say the words geopolitical risk to bankers of that vintage, typically the first thing they'll think of is credit risk issue, but essentially it's isolated within individual markets. Um, okay. uh, and then the challenge around geopolitics for firms generally and banks in particular now is that um, because there's been this gap in the approach uh, of firms, I don't think they know how to address it. Mm. There hasn't been much in the way of guidance. There isn't best practice. I've tried to rectify that to the extent possible through GRI, through producing best practice guidance. Um, mm. But the, uh, uh, otherwise, it's not clear what good looks like on this agenda. And also mm. dealing with geopolitics, trying to uh, get to grips with it is an inherently hard thing to do. It's mm. It's not prone. It's not like a sort of easy bit of credit risk analysis there are some complexities and challenges challenges mm. which i think incline people uh, in firms to sort of put geopolitics in the too difficult to deal with category <laughs> um, and, and, and the sort of that leads to a kind of head in the sand approach from what you just said i presume um sovereign credit risk is no longer where it's at in geopolitics what what sort of issues are people being asked to examine Oh well, so so sovereign risk is certainly still an issue, and mm. there's definitely an interface between geopolitics and heightened sovereigns risk, um, uh, and indeed an interface between geopolitics and heightened credit risk more broadly for the corporate sector, for for retail banking. We've seen that, um, particularly uh, in uh, two recent events. First, the uh, COVID pandemic and lockdowns. And secondly, in respect of the macroeconomic consequences, which have been felt globally from from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, both of those events show you that these big external risks um, uh, uh, can actually drive a macroeconomic uh, consequence that then tracks through into increased credit risk. So mm. there's definitely still an interface with credit risk, uh, mm. but there's also definitely an interface with markets risk. There's definitely an interface with operational risk. There's mm. definitely an interface with um, strategy and, and, and risk to uh, strategy delivery and execution. There's increasingly an interface with reputational risk for mm. organizations. And there's also uh, very much an interface, and this is particularly true of banking and insurers, an interface with uh, levels of capital adequacy and mm. therefore an interface with the stress testing process. Uh, and the way that can be used, um, therefore, to, uh, to 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 manage risk more effectively. So it's not a case that it's no longer about sovereign risk. It's still about sovereign risk, but mm. it's about loads of other things too. And it's, I typically find when engaging with, say, a banking audience, if I say the words geopolitical risk, they'll instantly now think of one of or some of those things, but not the whole picture. So typically, mm. if you speak to um, someone in banking, they say, ah, geopolitics, that's really about sanctions risk, isn't it? Or in other industry mm. sectors, they instantly jump to supply chain 
as the mm. sort of that's the thing that you know where the where the sort of rubber really hits the road for mm. geopolitical risk or or in another context people will frequently cite cyber as the sort of the the key nexus if you like between mm. geopolitics uh, and corporate performance it's certainly all of those things but the the point that we try to get across is that it's loads of other things besides mm. and that's quite apart by the way from the linkages and the nexus between uh, and the increasingly challenging nexus between geopolitics and ESG. Since there's so many moving and interlocking parts, how do you set up a structure that really addresses that? Can can you really break down those silos and look at it across the piece? How how can that be done? Or is that is that what a bank would aim to do? Yes, it is uh, what banks can and 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 should be doing more of. Um, it is a complex problem and a complex challenge, um, uh, as you say, uh, but by applying the key elements of a geopolitical uh, risk and, and issues management framework, it is possible um, to start bringing more structure to uh, to approaching these issues. Um, as always, you know, this is a, or, or changing the way firms operate on these kind of issues. Uh, mm. One tends to be a process rather than an event. Um, uh, and that you don't get perfection after the sort of first iteration. It, it needs time mm. to sort of iterate and to build. Mm. That um, uh, secondly, um, uh, sort of approaching this in a kind of sort of bite-sized chunks uh, way um, rather than trying to boil the ocean um, mm. is, is generally sensible. Mm. Um, um, and that thirdly, an effective framework can bring that kind of internally coordinated approach on these issues. Um, you know, the key elements of a framework, I think I could sort of enumerate in some detail, but very much mm. by way of, of sort of brief summary, the core element of an effective framework on these issues has to be uh, the systematic leveraging of uh, geopolitical expertise to okay. drive activity on this within an organisation. And I say that because if you go typically into a risk function um, uh, or a typical risk function in a financial institution, you'll have um, uh, you'll have accountants, you'll have economists, you'll have statisticians, you'll have modelers, you'll have mathematicians. Mm. You know, a, a very wide range of 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 very often quite deep technical expertise mm. um, uh, to to manage those traditional risk types that that we're all familiar with. Uh, and so we ask, OK, so that's great. You've got a very well-staffed risk function. <laughs> Where's mm. your geopolitics guy? Mm. And, and there's mm. a sort of scratching of heads. And actually, typically, you know, what what functions, what risk functions don't have, we find, is the capacity to draw on systematic um, uh, sort of support from, from uh, the kind of uh, analytical experts or expertise that, mm. that really needs to be the fuel that drives a wider framework once you've got that and, and that's an easy problem to fix and yeah. there are various sort of ways of doing that you, you can in HSBC you know we had a an in-house team that's by no means the only way of doing it yeah. um, uh, you, you, it's certainly possible to draw on external sources but just doing so on a more systematic basis but once you've got that you can then use that expertise to help drive those um, key areas of first line management decision making where mm. geopolitics may be a factor and where otherwise they may not be sort of fully recognising or cognisant of, of the geopolitical dimensions of mm. their decision making. You mm. can use that expertise to integrate uh, geopolitical more uh, issues more effectively into risk management frameworks 
and ongoing risk management activity. You can mm -hmm. use that expertise then to kind of deploy the analytical techniques and tools uh, that, that can help uh, sort of build a picture of how these big external geopolitical issues uh, might then track through to impacts for your organization. And ultimately, mm. all of that allows um, a, a much more considered approach to developing mitigation strategies. Mm. Um, uh, uh, and, and those mitigation strategies, I think, if you recognise that the problem is a multifaceted one with potential mm. financial impacts, operational impacts, reputational impacts, strategic impacts, those mitigation strategies then can can reflect that that multifaceted nature. So you mm. might have financial mitigation strategies around hedging or portfolio portfolio diversification if you're in the asset management business or or in banking you might be seeking to change um sort of portfolio credit and market risk limits uh, mm. or you might be sort of driving um uh, or using uh, stress testing uh, as a process to identify whether additional capital may 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 need to be uh, held against certain kinds of risk uh, mm. as well as sort of driving more effective operational uh, risk management uh, and, and more effective approaches to potential uh, third party risk management as well, mm. along with stuff around strategy, stress testing strategies, uh, stress testing in the sense of just, you know, holding them up, making sure they hold up, mm. um, uh, as well as sort of considering reputational issues. Um, mm. So 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 when you get a framework in place, you you, you can start building a much more sort of holistic and interconnected uh, internal approach that tracks through from external challenge round mm. through to mitigation. Mm. Can I ask the inevitable tech question? I was talking to some trade finance banks and they're saying, yes, we have massive systems that can just huge amounts of data, flag up all sorts of um, potentially problematic things. We still have people in place who look at these and decide what is or isn't fundamentally a problem and why? What would you look for when you're looking for someone to to analyse geopolitical risk? Uh, so, so it's a very good question. And I think the start point for my answer is that um, typically, and to the point I made a, a couple of minutes ago, typically uh, no one in a financial institution's risk function will have any background in um, a geopolitical risk analysis. We occasionally find, you know, that someone who does credit risk or someone on, a, on an operational resilience team, they might have some academic background. So they might, for instance, mm. have done a master's degree, uh, you know, a decade or two ago in international mm. relations and found it really interesting. Um, but, but you know, then their career has sort of tracked off in a, in a different direction. Mm. Um, uh, but beyond that, typically there isn't uh on a routine basis that kind of um uh internal skill set within mm. a risk function or indeed elsewhere in a bank or in a financial institution um so really overcoming the skill set is a sort of gap and deficit i think is the background to uh the the, the answer to your question um mm. and that therefore if you want to start filling filling that deficit or overcoming that deficit uh, bringing in uh, someone or uh, 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 with with some kind of geopolitical nous background mm. expertise uh, to help start the process of building a, a framework and providing better advice internally is mm. really key. Now, now um, I I could give you a couple of for instances, um, but but you know I came out of a government context uh, and then started mm. the work of of building 
uh, building HSBC's um, uh, geopolitical function. I think that's quite typical. Um, uh, the, mm. the, and, and actually firms otherwise, if you look at board, uh, the board agenda um, for, for a major financial, uh, financial institution, you may find that sort of once a year or once every six months, they get a briefing from, say, an ex-ambassador or an ex-political mm. figure about what's going on geopolitically. So bringing in someone with some government background, relevant government background, can be handy. And of course, you see that too on, with government affairs teams. You know, they are they very often recruit people, um, particularly in the financial sector, who've got a background in either financial sector regulation. So have worked mm. for regulators or have got a background in public policymaking where it bears on the financial sector. So mm. in the US, for instance, they may have um, uh, been in a US Treasury role before they go into a government affairs team. Um, or in the UK context, they may have been in, in Treasury and in, in, in the UK government before before going into government affairs teams. So there is a kind of precedent for that. Um, I could talk more about the role of government affairs teams, but that's a sort of slightly separate um, mm. uh, issue. But um, so, so someone with a government background can help. Uh, we generally advise against those with a um, solely academic background in um, political or geopolitical risk issues. So, what, you know, someone who's only done um, uh, international relations in a, in a university mm. uh, context, uh, partly because um, that's not quite a rounded enough skill set um, uh, for the kind of work that would need to be done in a in a business and financial sector context. Mm. Um, although, if that's your only choice, then, then maybe maybe mm. it's better than nothing. First question I wanted to ask was: When you went into financial services, was it they were out looking, or you arrived in the firm and said, "Hang on, there's a gap here"? To what extent was it a push, and what extent a pull? It's, it's a bit of both, um, or it was a bit of both. Um, I was brought in uh, to the risk function. The bank was certainly looking for. Uh, a bit more um, uh, political and geopolitical uh, expertise. There had been a couple of of sort of particular issues uh, mm. that HSBC had faced um, uh, that that led them to conclude that a bit more sort of, um, uh, if you like, nous um, on on these issues, a bit more um, of a of a sort of systematic and an expert understanding mm. of the uh, geopolitical environment would be handy. But still, the role at that stage was very much sort of configured in the kind of functional silo context. Okay. Uh, and actually, the gap that I saw very quickly was that uh, we were building a pool of expertise sort of within the silo that we were sitting in. But actually, mm. there were half a dozen other places you know, that I could identify within within the first few weeks where they were seeking to absorb political and geopolitical information and data points to inform their decision making, uh, but doing so in a completely sort of um, fragmented way. Uh, okay. and, and, and so it was just sort of seeing that picture across the piece, if you like, mm. that, that led me to think that there was a an internal, at the very least, an internal connectivity issue, as well as an issue of if we've got this expertise and the bank's paying us for it, <laughs> why aren't we using mm. that capability? to drive all of the aspects of decision making where geopolitics may be a factor um, uh, as opposed to just operating in our in our sort of silo. Um, mm. So, so you know, there was definitely a sort of push element from me.
You you have an army background. You were you were an army officer. Does the train does the training you had there have any bearing on how you go about these things? Do you think that was? I've, I've spoken to other army officers in different contexts about what they can bring to management. Do you think that that matters? Um, yes, I suppose so. Um, I, and actually, after the army, I I then went to do intelligence work uh for for government um uh before then going on to hsbc and that was a different and also very useful skill set um to sort of carry across as well um i i mean just on the military side of things as you'll be aware it's sort of the the military approach is a um one where you seek to think strategically um you seek to sort of read the environment um uh, and, and uh, on a proactive basis you sort of are, are, I suppose, trained, if you like, to um, to plan, um, to work collaboratively, to seek to use all of the instruments at your disposal to achieve the mission objective. And I think one of the things that that I found on on the transition from the sort of public into the private sector was that some of those elements um, didn't always sort of manifest in a in a, in in the case of HSBC um, in, in a banking context. Uh, and the, in an organisation as large as that, with so many global business lines uh, and different components to the organisation, an organisation, by the way, which had grown and expanded into a huge number of new markets, um, particularly mm. in the sort of decade or so before I joined the bank, um, that that level of internal complexity uh, didn't really, um, or what wasn't apparent was that kind of collaborative working there were a lot of functional organizational silos um mm. you know sort of working within the parameters that they saw immediately around them mm. uh, and not necessarily thinking more broadly mm. and that sort of slight sense of um strategic awareness that i suppose the partly military but partly then intelligence work uh, 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 had instilled in me was one of the most useful elements of being able then to go into a private sector context and say actually there's a wider issue here um, mm. and, and, and the problem in part is actually how we work internally on this as mm. well as what's going on in the geopolitical environment. Mm. Is there anything about financial services that makes them particularly vulnerable is too strong a word but there, there are other big multinational firms say oil or gas that you think mm. well they're on the front line of geopolitical risk but what about banks do they put Face any particular challenges around yeah, think geopolitics? So. Yeah, I, I think so um, in two main respects, but actually there's also, I think, a piece of upside for, for most banks uh, and other financial institutions in all of this. But just in respect of the sort of sectoral challenge, if you like, yes, if, if you, I, I'm often kind of um, not confronted by uh, when I engage um, uh, businesses, um, they often say, uh, well, oil and gas firms have been dealing with geopolitical risk for uh, decades. You know, they mm. are the past masters at it. I mm. have to sort of wryly point out that, yes, they've got a lot of experience. Um, but but it, to, to take a very recent example, um, nearly every Western oil major has had have had their, their fingers badly burnt in Russia. Okay. Uh, had yeah. to write down um, billions of dollars in losses um, mm. in, uh, in in exiting their Russian operations in the aftermath of the invasion of Ukraine. So, so whilst yes, they may have a great deal of experience, I think they've got a great deal of experience in kind of the old paradigm of political risk, where it was okay. domestically contained within individual markets. 
and mm. they're still grappling with with um, a, a kind of a much wider uh, and more interconnected um, geopolitical risk, what we call geopolitical risk 2.0, um, okay. uh, because it's it, the, the kind of the nature of of this as a challenge has changed very fundamentally. Um, mm. in, in respect to the financial sector, yes, I think they are. They, they have a higher exposure than I think firms in, in other industry sectors to this for two main reasons. One is that they are increasingly an instrument of government's national security policy because they are the institutions above all others that are required to implement sanctions. Um, mm. Uh, mm. And um, uh, they therefore, are, in effect, are a kind of policy instrument for public policymakers in a way that that means that they are very exposed to uh, to changes um, uh, in the geopolitical environment. Mm. Um, uh, and that comes with all sorts of sort of facets and dimensions and challenges for uh, for banks. Um, but they are therefore, you know, that's a very direct um, uh, sort of interface and exposure for them. Um, uh, but I think the other aspect of their exposure is that most banks of any scale and size will have a corporate banking unit and an investment banking unit um, or some combination of the two mm. and therefore are providing banking services sort of um, if you like effectively corporate and investment banking services potentially on on a substantial scale to a range of firms and corporate entities across a range of industry sectors who may also be getting impacted by by changing geopolitical conditions Mm. So unlike firms in other industry sectors, banks, um, you know, typically have a kind of a great deal of indirect exposure through, for instance, their corporate banking books mm. um, uh, in a way that firms in other sectors won't have. So there's a kind of vector there mm. um, uh, that, that raises, I think, additional challenge for um, for banks. And I think I would also sort of finally say on this point that for many banks, they were at the sort of forefront of the that wave of globalization at the end of mm. the Cold mm. War. Uh, and that's meant that they've had operations and, expo and, and have now got exposures uh, in markets where, where perhaps um, uh, some other firms won't have. There's a kind of um, organizational idiosyncrasy to where exposures mm. uh, may be. But, um, uh, you know, having been so much at the forefront of uh, the, the kind of wave of globalization. It means that they're now at the forefront of of uh, risk exposure as geopolitical mm. conditions have changed. Do you see regulators on the case about this? I mean, I think a stress testing as being a fairly domestic, well, not just domestic, of course, GSIBs have a different give different game mm. to play. Are regulators asking banks to be aware of geopolitical risk? Yes, to some extent, the picture is uneven and um, it, it does vary by regulator. If you look, for instance, at the uh, I think it's the OCC in the US, their bank supervisory uh, or bank um, examiner supervisory manual, mm. you know, it's fairly clear that, the, you know, there's a substantial component in there on, on what they call country risk. So where a US domiciled bank is being assessed by the regulator, there are expectations that they manage their overseas operations um, in, in certain ways so as not to sort of jeopardize or imperil uh, the overall uh, financial performance, particularly of, 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 the, of the banking question. Mm. And that part of that does look at political risk. Um, so, so there is a sort of uh, a kind of political risk thread in the US rule books. 
And that sort of, I think, particularly has driven the kind of country risk model approach to risk management in um, uh, in banks and particularly in credit risk teams. You know, mm. it's nearly ubiquitous that, that those those credit risk teams will operate quantified um, uh, uh, credit risk, country risk models um, mm. that try and capture political risk within individual jurisdiction. Um, coming across to, to this side of the pond um, uh, and this side of the Atlantic, there is a, a I'm surprised actually because, because I often end up pointing this out to folk in the financial sector. The PRA's rule book does require UK domicile firms to account for geopolitical factors in their ICAP and stress testing uh, okay. processes. Um, uh, but I think the challenge there and certainly um, if I could put it sort of um, in, a, in a fairly neutral way where, you know, I've engaged with the uh, Bank of England on this, I think there is still some uncertainty in there about a about the extent to which this is a problem and, and potentially a a risk factor to uk financial stability mm. um uh, but also perhaps more acutely uh, um as yet a, a, a sort of no agreed understanding of how they should supervise financial institutions in respect of this issue yeah, and otherwise, it, it is interesting because if you look at, say, the half yearly um, uh, assessments of UK financial stability and risks to financial stability that the Bank of England issue, um, mm. you know, it's, they have referenced um, geopolitical factors uh, before now. So when there was unrest in Hong Kong ahead of the national security laws extension there, um, uh, you know, they referenced that. Um, but I'm not then sure that sort of fully tracked through to knowing what to look for in um, uh, in, in uh, UK banks um, risk management approaches. Mm. Uh, um, and you see the same as well on the, for the ECB. You know, they frequently reference sort of geopolitical risk as a mm. potential factor. And they were asking um, some uh, European, some of the bigger European banks about their Russian exposures mm. before the invasion of Ukraine. But again, I think it's. It's sort of ad hoc. It's uh, there's not yet a kind of systematic regulatory approach on this. Mm. What about the in, the interplay between geopolitical risk and biodiversity, and the and and climate risk, and the drive by major regulators to to get banks to consider those issues? I mean, that must be there must be a complex matrix there. Yes, and of course, that's still a sort of work in progress. Mm. Um, I think many a financial institution are sort of, if you like, figuratively scratching their heads, trying to work out, you know, how they try and um, model these kinds of risks, climate as well, and the incorporation of, mm. of climate into stress testing processes. Actually, there are quite a few parallels um, uh, between between integrating climate scenarios into stress testing and integrating geopolitical factors into uh, stress testing scenarios oh, okay. um, uh, and, and, and some of the complexities and challenges are also shared. Um, uh, but but coming to, I mean, to sort of pick up on the substance of that of that linkage between geopolitics and ESG generally and climate and biodiversity, um, this does pose, I think, a, um, a, a kind of risk management challenge for financial institutions. To illuminate this by reference to a specific example, 
Um, mm. The the uh, invasion of uh, Ukraine caused a very sharp spike in oil and gas prices. Mm. Um, uh, it's led a number of um, uh, countries in Europe to try and reduce substantially their dependence on uh, particularly imports of Russian gas and to some mm. extent oil. Uh, and that in that process, you know, there is a, a kind of open question mark about what that means for the renewable energy transition. Does it mean mm. it slows down? Does it mean it speeds up? Um, what's the role of financial institutions in, in that sort of complex and dynamic changing public policy environment? Um, uh, and how do you account for that in, in uh, sort of internal processes? Um, uh, and, and that I think is a really good illustration of where geopolitics makes the sort of ESG agenda more broadly, but particularly in that case, you know, the, the issues around carbon uh, dioxide mm. uh, reduction measures and the transition to renewable energies, uh, sort of more complex than, 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 than perhaps many might have thought. Um, mm. uh, and, and I think that's a, a, therefore an example of that kind of, you know, the complexity of the linkage uh, mm. between geopolitics and ESG. You can see that play out in other things like uh, rare earths and lithium is is a mm. is a sort of frequently cited example where you know electric vehicles require really quite a lot of rare earths and lithium per per vehicle. Um, these are some of the most geopolitically contested um, and sensitive uh, raw materials and commodities mm. um, uh, going. Um, and so it's you know there's definitely that sort of decision making that that needs to be considered there. Mm. Can I ask it to, to finish up? I'm conscious of gobbling a lot of your time. Can I ask a very simplistic headline question? What what should banks be thinking about in terms of geopolitical risk over the next few months, whether in terms of hiring or actual risks coming down the pike? What 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 should people have front of mind? Uh, well, well, one obviously ongoing uh, 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 military um, uh, confrontation in in eastern Ukraine. Mm. Um, uh, and I say that not not because that will directly affect most financial institutions, but what will continue to be the case are that the global uh, market and macroeconomic consequences of the of the Russian invasion, I think, will continue to be a feature of the of the global uh, economy and the global macroeconomic landscape, and that will affect bank, banks and financial financial institutions in one way or another. Mm. Um, so, so I would certainly uh, keep that in mind. Um, mm. uh, the second, I mean, I would typically point to a couple of other things. I mean, clearly, there's there's been a, a substantial increase in concern around China's posture in respect of Taiwan. Uh, and of course, it was last only last August that uh, the large, pretty much the largest ever military exercises were conducted by Chinese military forces around Taiwan in a way that that sort of encroached into and crossed various boundaries, mm. both formal and informal, um, uh, mm. around Taiwan uh, following the visit of, of the then Speaker of, of um, uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, from the US. Um, uh, and I think certainly um, uh, increased neuralgia, if you like, around around that issue is certainly warranted. And in our engagement with clients, you know, we're talking to them about how you can start to to look at that as a risk issue. Uh, and then mm. otherwise, I would just point to a couple of other things. And one of the characteristics of, of geopolitics is that, um, and, and we find this with risk functions, if a geopolitical issue is not making headlines, 
um, people tend to forget about it um, mm. uh, and they tend to think that um, uh, it's no longer an issue. And I would put a couple of very big issues into the category of they're not making headlines, but they're still there in the background. One mm. is uh, around Iran's nuclear program. So that overall um, uh, uh, issue is trending in a negative way, um, if I could put it like that. Uh, mm. and, and that, I think, raises some interesting or potentially challenging um, uh, geopolitical scenarios. Um, so I would point to that as an issue. I would mm. also point to uh, the politics, particularly of the Eurozone, uh, as they bear on the nature of the monetary union uh, and, and the, the way in which political developments in certain key countries in the Eurozone uh, uh, may um, uh, generate, uh, if you like, currency union-wide um, uh, stresses and strains. Mm. Um, and again, that's not really making the headlines at the mm, moment, true. but no, I think it's, it's sort not. of there in the mm. background. Mm. And there's a bunch of sort of stuff around US domestic political dynamics as well, mm. um, particularly around the debt ceiling. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, that's, that's I think, probably another issue that, that, that folk may not have clogged because it's not mm. routinely in the headlines. And mm. that reminds me, one of the big things we find when we engage with, with uh, CROs uh, and others, they say, look, I read the newspapers, so I know about geopolitics. Actually, if you're reading about it on the front page, it's already too late to do something about it. Yeah, and, and that part of the kind of skills gap that, that needs to be overcome, if you like, is, is to get beyond the mentality that says um, media coverage is my first and best source of understanding um, mm. on, on uh, geopolitical risk issues. Mm. <laughs> Much as I hate to agree with that, yes, I'm, I'm sure you're right. <laughs> Journalists well, are probably I mean, the last to know. <laughs> well, and, you know, it's it's um, we've got very good recent examples of this that, um, do, yeah. you know, do, do, did Putin sort of go out and, and brief the Financial <laughs> Times um, no. or, 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 or the Washington Post or mm. the South China Morning Post about the, that he was going to invade? He was denying it until right until the last minute. Do any of those who, who um, might, might, might be interested in, in um, absorbing this conversation think a, a another a government leader um, necessarily sort of telegraphs their intentions in advance. Uh, I mean, generally, mm. you, you can't assume they will. Um, <laughs> and, and, and therefore, Indeed. it's it's, yeah. it's perhaps a little um, um, it's a little too informal to rely on, you know, media coverage alone. Let alone mm. the biases in media coverage, the editorial yeah. slants, yeah. their access to information. You know, mm. that there's a whole sort of um, subset of analytical methodology on. You know, how do you more effectively track uh, uh, geopolitical issues in advance rather than waiting for them to happen and then try and you know, sort of mad scramble to react? Mm. Yeah, well, that, that does sound sensible. <laughs> so, well, thank you so much for, for chatting to me, Derek. It was really interesting. <laughs>